Let's let's start. Any any prayer request? Any prayer request? Are you can't read my writing? Yeah. Come on, ask me. I which Fools. What's the matter with you guys? Just so you know, just so you know, I mean, me and my class of students have always, they constantly bring papers back to me and say, what are you, and right now, the last couple of years, it's just gotten worse and worse. I can't, the only reason I can read this at all is because it's larger. When I'm writing, when I'm editing my own writing, I, I mean, it's just, it's just not good at all. It's not a good at So pl please don't, you're not going to embarrass me. I mean, I'm already embarrassed about it. So if you can't read anything, just ask, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, and most especially right now for the period of Lent that we're about to enter into. It's a strange spiritual time of trial. Um, um, different people say different things. Some priests say, you're supposed to be giving up your sins all year round, you know, pick on something different. I mean, I, I look at it and think, our sins are always with us. Um, Lent is a time to bear down. Um, one of the my great pieces of gratitude for our church is that I look forward to Lent because I, I think of Lent as a time in which we, we are aware that we share our burdens with each other. And I, I take that seriously. I have the feeling that we're all going up purgatory the mountain together and we, we know that whatever we're doing it, we're doing it partly with others in mind and others are doing it partly with me in mind and I'm especially grateful for that time. So I ask a blessing on all of us in the efforts that we make this Lent. Um, you call us to be perfect. Um, there's no way to do that without a cross. Strengthen us in our efforts, please, to bear our crosses, um, to make a little bit more room for pain or suffering, um, trusting, believing that we do it um, as a way into a greater joy. That's your promise. That's our hope. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, um, particularly with each other. Um, ask a um, special blessing on Chuck and Lori tonight, the traveling, and for Connie. Keep them safe on their travels, see them to their destination and home again. And ask for a special protection for all of us from this, um, what's it called, Kenora virus? coronavirus. Um, keep us safe, please. Surround us with your protection, particularly those people who are traveling. Um, help us not to be cavalier about this. And there's a serious threat. Help us to take it seriously. Um, be with Jen. Um, she uh, prepares for surgery with cancer. Um, glad for um, David and Kay's daughters um, coming through chemo, watch over her as she continues. She's not out of the woods. Um, most of us are there even if we think we're out of it. So 
Um, help us to be with you in all that we're doing and whatever special burdens we carry, I believe most of us do, help us to bear them with good hearts, to pick ourselves up when we fall. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Michelle, are you going to come up here? Come up here. Come here. I miss you when you're... No? Come. God. Come. I want to reach you. I do. It's true. I want to get close to you. Come up here where I can see your eyes. So did everybody get the handouts? And Suzanne, bless her heart, went out of her way. I hope you all saw that. It's a, a Mardi, Gras, Mardi Gras cake. What's it called? A king cake? Kin? King? Kin? King cake. There's Mardi Gras king cake. Um, the fact that there are so many colors is not an invitation to you take each one of them. <laughs> You have to choose. Um, I w let's start. I want to. We'll get to the um, the the. I want to read a couple of the lyrics tonight. But before we do, I want to go back just to ask if there are any follow-up questions or comments about the movie that we saw together. Any thoughts? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. About what? The street sweeper. Who, the street sweeper. Uh, no, you go ahead. Just okay. It says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say. Here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Wow. I, I've never heard that from, but that elevates my respect for him. I mean, yes to that. What else is there to say? We live in an age that wants to exalt everything, and it means, I, I get so angry at um, Hollywood stars who, particularly the women who talk about the drudgery of housework, God, because they've got maids, and whatever we do, um, Whatever we do, cleaning the house, doing chores, you know, whatever. Um, um, here's St. Thomas. Here's St. Thomas, because my kids have heard me preach this all of our life together. I, and I say it to, when I work out and I see athletes working in the gym, because I, I get frustrated with the egos of particularly basketball players today. St. Thomas's comment was, Whatever you do, do it for the good of that thing itself. That should be a principle for all of us. Whatever you do, do it for the good of that thing. Because the danger is if we don't do it for that, we're usually doing it for ourselves, even if we don't know it. You know, um, C.S. Lewis once said he was writing an essay on, um, on I, can't remember what the, I can't remember what the title was, but basically what he was saying is, and he was responding to a problem in England because, as you know, England has an aristocratic sense of itself. It's, got, it's still got the, the royal family. And he was responding to people who want to cultivate um, manners. 
So they set out to learn how to play the piano so they can take pride and say, look how, look how good I am, you know, or whatever it is. And he said, you don't ever want to do that because if you do that, what you're going to do is cultivate a, um, um, an attitude of snobbishness. You become a snob. He said, whatever you do, and this is from Tom, whatever you do, do it for the good of that thing. I say that to our kids, to athletes particularly. If you're going to be an athlete, give everything you've got, but do it for the good of that. If, if you're too, I had a, there was a, my son coaches at Jesuit, and um, one of the guards a year ago, was one of the most gifted guards I've ever seen in my life, absolutely gifted. I, I so admired him. He, and he wasn't the kind who would take a lot of shots, and I wished he'd shoot more. And we were watching a game one day, and he, he made a shot and missed. And as he went down the court, his head was down. So I talked with him afterwards, had a serious talk with him. Um, I told him something that the coach had told me in my freshman year of college basketball, which he, what he said was, I'd never heard it from anybody before. He said, 99% of every sport is recovery. Nobody had ever said that. It's absolutely true. So I, my comment to the kid was, so when you were going down the court and you missed the shot and you hung your head, who are you thinking about? Yourself or your team? <laughs> you know, I mean, he knew immediately where I was going. I said, I don't ever want to see you do that again. You miss a shot, you shoot again. You shoot again. You don't stop, but you don't do it. You do it for the good of that. You know, get yourself out of the way. How many of us can do that? It's not an easy thing to do to get ourselves out of the way. But I couldn't agree, so I couldn't agree more. And it's one of the reasons I love the movie, because he, he was so ashamed to come back from having a job in an orchestra to, being, to working for an undertaker. The, humili the humiliation of his wife, she said, don't touch me, you're dirty or filthy. filthy. Yeah. And then to watch him transform, remember when he was so furious at the boss? After that first episode, when he went into the home and there was that stench of that body, he was sickened. And he went to that, that little riverlet, riverlet and was furious at his boss, didn't want to go back to work. And then went back to work and he was called. And that first scene where the, he watches the boss do it, he watches on in absolute humility because he sees the dignity of it. And then his wife did the same thing at the end. Remember when she came, even though she didn't want to, and watched him perform that preparation on the, the bathhouse woman. She was absolutely humble. And if you remember the end of the movie, when the, when the whatever you call them, preparers, whatever the word they was for, you know, when the two men came in to prepare his father's body, and they were just sort of rush-shot, it was so disrespectful. I mean, couldn't have been farther away from what drew him. And, and he came to see that it was a calling a calling, that it was fated, there was a grace in it, that, that God had wanted him to be there. So he took it as a calling. When those two men came in and started, you know, rough-shotting things, his wife said, stop it, he's a professional. God, <laughs> God, I mean, it's just blessings everywhere in that movie. It was a touching movie. Any other? Mary Young. <laughs> That's good. But I just noticed the rituals that I play out in my everyday. Yeah. 
we all do and don't aren't, generally aren't aware of it but yes yeah yeah it would be a good thing if when we did because I think all of us have rituals we just do a lot without thinking if we could enter into them knowing that they're graces I mean to do you know what you're talking about to somehow try to move with the spirit carry him in us when we do these things it would just be better but Right, right, right. And as I described it to her, and I showed her the, the, one of the trailers on YouTube, and she said, I have to see this movie, because on Wednesdays, I spend the whole day at the nursing home working with these oh, wow. people's hair. And yep. And it is, yep. I'm called to see this. Boy, I hadn't even thought of, it. It, it. it really should be a requirement for people working in healthcare and with seniors in homes. I hadn't even, what a blessing it would be for them to see that and carry that over into their work. Yep, 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 yep. Any more? If you watch the practices of the Shinto and Buddhist priests, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and there was just a, one, vi one view in the movie of everything they do is in yeah. 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 I just finished a book um, relating the Trinity or relating the three genres to the three persons of the Trinity. I cannot tell you how much I believe that the Three persons are far more a part of our lives than most of us think. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay, one last thing before we start, because this goes to literature, and it's something I'm not sure. That night of the movie, I tried to take a couple of minutes beforehand just to ask you to be aware of some things. Um, We're going to start with a lyric in a second. In the Republic, Plato says there are two ways of presenting literature, two modes. Um, hold on to what David said because we're going to, we're going to go back there in a second. <coughs> Two modes. One he calls di diegesis or diegetic. The other is mimesis or mimetic. Most of you have heard the term mimesis. It means imitation. All work, all work of literature is mimetic. It's an imitation of reality, right? We read a book and it imitates what we know. We watch a movie, it imitates what we know. So all works of literature are mimetic. Plato said there are two forms of um, presenting literature. One is diegetic, it's diegesis, and the other is mimesis, it's mimetic. In diegesis, the, the, the poet is speaking in his own voice. Now you know that from now, because we read the Iliad. 
When the Iliad begins, Homer's speaking in his own voice, right? He's telling the story. As a matter of fact, a couple of times he'll break into the narrative. He's going to do it in the Odyssey a number of times. At the end, when, when Odysseus returns home, Homer's going to go, Oh, Eumaeus. He's the sheep herder who has to do all the dirty work. And Homer go, Oh, Eumaeus. It's his empathy for a character. That's how real the characters are for Homer. For Homer. Oh, Eumaeus. That's Homer in his own voice, right? When Achilles speaks, Achilles is speaking in his own voice. So the poet is practicing mimesis. He's presenting the character speaking on his own. Okay? Is that clear? So in Diegesis, the, the poet is speaking in his voice. In mimesis, the character is speaking in his. So, diegesis is lyric. Every day when we meet, I start our meetings with a lyric. And you know from our, from our experiences of it, that the poet is always speaking in his own voice. The, um, take any of them um, this morning, or I mean tonight when I read, you'll hear the same thing. Remember when we did Supernatural Love, the mother was speaking in her own voice of an experience she had when she was four. That was her. So in Mimes, sorry, in Diegesis, we're getting a glimpse of um, the inner self, the interior of the poet. And if any of you have thought about your own emotional life, you know how hard that is. Emotions are very obscure. It's hard to get to them. Okay? Poets go into that life in lyric. Generally, not always, but often, the lyric poet is expressing his love for the beloved. Shakespeare, John Donne, some of the poems we've read. Um, it's his love of something. But what we're getting is his love of something. What he feels inside is being expressed in the poem, okay? Diegesis is a character speaking in his own voice objectively. It's what we can see. So in Shakespeare's plays, was anybody narrating them? No, right? They were just characters speaking in their own voice. Pure mimesis. Othello, Desdemona, Portia, right? Helena. So that's pure Mimesis. So diegesis is the poet speaking in his own voice. Mimesis is characters, they're being imitated, they're being presented as speaking in their voices. Okay, now that's crucial. So mimesis or diegesis takes us into the interior. What's subjective? It's so hard to see, right? Um, you all remember the wind hover? Gerard Manley Hopkins describing the bird in the, bird in the sky. Okay, look here. If we had been out on that field that morning and watched this man crossing a field and looking up at the sky and watching this wind hover, would we have known what was inside of that man? Absolutely not, right? But we got that poem and suddenly we're allowed to go into his interior and feel what he felt and then reflect on it. No wonder of it. Sheer plod, you know, makes plow down shoe and shine. So, um, Lyric takes us into that hidden interior. Mimesis shows us objectively what's there, people speaking in their own voice. And you know that great poets like Shakespeare can show us what's objectively there, but if we listen to them and watch their actions, we begin to understand what's going on inside of them as well. But Mimesis is focusing on the person speaking and acting in his own voice. It's not being filtered through a narrator.
Is everybody clear? Okay. Plato went on to say, if you combine these two things, diegesis with emesis, you get a mixed form. What's that form called? Narrative. It's either epic or the novel. Right? Because in epic or the novel, we get somebody, a narrator, telling us a story about somebody else, not himself, right? But it comes through him. By the way, David, <laughs> this is my book. There's the Trinity. The lyric is the inward. Here, I'm going to ask you guys a question. Here, see what you guys do with this. So if you had to line up lyric, narrative, drama, yeah, those are our three genres, the basic genres of literature, lyric, narrative, drama. And you had to line them up with three persons of the Trinity. How would you line them up? I'm going to grade you on this quiz. God the Father would be the narrative. Sorry? God the Father would be the narrative. Why? Boy, you've got the fact that you would even introduce that term is really good for you, Mary. Anybody else? Mary's absolutely wrong. <laughs> I just I had to take advantage of that, Mary, because I know you have a sense of humor. No, I do. You got the first part right. Why would you say what you said? Did make a defense of Christ as drama and the spirit as um, narrative. Okay, having read Dante, the Holy and knowing that the Holy Spirit is the result of love between the Father and the Son. Boy, good for you. I would because the narrative is the means of the two. I would say that the narrative is the Holy Spirit. Say again. I know, but I was asking why. Because it's a mix between the two. Sorry? It's a mix between the two. Mixed, yeah. Here's my argument for what, um, and if you disagree, can we wait? Because I want to get into the, I want to get to the Odyssey. We shouldn't have done this, but, but I wanted to go back to the lyric. I, want, I still want to come back to the point that I was making a minute ago. My argument is this, that um, the lyric is the father, because we know from the way that he named, I am that am. He's all interiority. He's original. He's not derivative. He's original. I am that am. He's the father. By the way, he's not father because Christ was generated afterwards. He's called that in relationship to his son. Because the son didn't come into being after the father. We know that the, the son is consubstantial, co-eternal with the father. Okay? The father's original. I am that am. He's pure interior, interiority. The Son is begotten. In narrative, narrative, in narrative, the I of lyric, I, I am, that person speaking in his own voice begets another. Jane Austen begets Jane, or um, Emma, or you know, whoever it is. Homer begets Achilles. He, he, he brings him into being in his poem. And the two coexist. Um, 
And in, in drama, the poet um, is effaced, gone, completely gone. So what we have in drama is the reality of something that only comes into existence between the father and the son. And let me try to make that a little bit clearer because I'm not sure that it was. Um, um, in the I, you've got a still point, I am. Okay. In, this, in narrative, you, the I is begetting somebody, a character is brought into being. In drama, you have the same situation that you have in narrative. It's a plot, something extended in time, but the I drops out. And what happens in narrative is what happens because of what exists between the I and narrative. That is somebody telling a story, bringing somebody into being. So it's all there in drama, but there's no I to tell it. He, he, he withdraws behind it. He's effaced in order to let what happens in the I and the you come into being. Anyway, I don't want to go into that because it's a, but, um, but my, I would just, I mean, it was David, I just really a way of sort of standing behind you, David, that, that the Trinity's present everywhere. I happen to believe that he's present in the three genres um, those three voices, but here's the point that I wanted to make. The, one, the point that I wanted you to make, or you to hear, is that I thought the music, the soundtrack of that movie was particularly moving. I just, I just love that cello melody that haunts it, you know, all the way through. Particularly when, when he's on that little knoll on a chair, you know. I, what I wanted you to remember or think about is that the soundtrack of a, of a movie, what the, the, the movie is pure mimesis, right? It's like drama. That's what I, it's drama. It's characters speaking in their own voice, right? It's just exactly like, there's no narrator. The characters are speaking in their own voice. But in all good movies, I mean, most good movies that have a soundtrack, what you're hearing is that lyric interior. There's nobody there speaking it. Very often the soundtrack came on when something else was going on. But music is very often that I, that, that personal feeling of the poet to help express something in music that can't be expressed through the characters. And that music will always enhance a story. Is that clear? Is that clear? So just, you know, just because we're, I'm reading lyrics every you know, every time we meet, and we're, we've been looking at plays, at dramas, and, and we just did a, um, an epic, a narrative, and you wouldn't put those th things together, but just be aware of that. When a story's being told and there's music being put to it, that's that inner voice. It, it's, it's that expression of something that cannot be put into words. It's the feelings that we associate with an action that we couldn't express in words. That's that inner emotional form of the lyric. Is that clear? I hope. Anyway, just something for you to think about um, going ahead. Okay, um, tonight, oops, tonight, thanks. Tonight, um, thanks, sorry, Melody, I'm, I'm really grateful, thanks. Um, what I'd like to do is read a couple of poems that have to do with words because words are, are going to be an essential part of everything having to do 
with Homer's The Odyssey. We're going to be looking at two very different epics, and at the center of this heroic epic, it's going to end with Odysseus killing a hundred suitors. So um, we're not going to miss any violence. There's violence every, all the way through the, the story. There are these hundred students, suitors um, using their force, again, the same theme that we saw in the Iliad, to try to force Penelope to do something and, and her son, Telemachus, by virtue of their force. So force runs through this again, um, but Odysseus is going to distinguish himself from Achilles in a couple of fundamental ways, and one of them is the way in which he uses words. So it's going to speak very directly to the center of our faith, because the center of our faith is the Word. The one who brought order, who created, who was the source of it, and who came in to redeem it when it was fallen. What he, so the, the unspoken word outside of time, yeah? The unspoken enters time and speaks. When we read the gospel, we hear Christ speaking to us constantly. Constantly speaking, helping us to understand some things, yeah? Fundamental to Odysseus' character is what he does with words. And we'll see as we go along. I mean, it's not going to mean much to you now, but I hope it will come to mean a lot more. It's a way of underlining how important words are for our education. Try to imagine yourself being raised in a closet. But when you were born, you were stuck in a closet, and at 25, the door was open, you came out, you never heard a word in your life, you never read a text. What would it be like for you to enter a world if you had never learned to use words? What words make possible in your life? Can you even imagine? Because with words, we not only have a power for relating to our world, we have a power for bringing something new into it all the time. I hope that's what we're doing together, that if these are things you've not thought about before, that something new has been happening to you through these words. Yeah? Take away the words. Could we do it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, I want to read a couple of pieces that, can you take the, the handout with the Dana Goya? Or Joya? It's actually Joya. Um, do you all have it? It's the Dana um, Joya um, word poems, and then there's a couple of um, George Herbert poems that you should already have, but um, I wasn't sure that you'd have it, so I, I, printed, I printed it up again. So Dana Joy, he's a contemporary, he's a Catholic poet. He's rare. I'm so sorry Chris is not here tonight. Rare. Um, 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 so let me read words by Dana Joya. The world does not need words. It articulates itself in sunlight, leaves, and shadows. The stones on the path are no less real for lying uncatalogued and uncounted. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. This is like Hopkins. Everything in the world speaks. I hope you all hear that. Everything speaks. Do we hear them? Do we listen? And one word transforms it into something less or other, illicit, chaste, perfunctory, conjugal, covert. Even calling it a kiss betrays the fluster of hand. Oh, sorry. 
The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. The kiss is still fully itself, though no words were spoken. And one word trans transforms it, the kiss, into something less or other, illicit, chaste, perfunctory, conjugal, covert. Even calling it a kiss betrays the fluster of hands, glancing the skin or gripping a shoulder, the slow arching of neck or knee, the silent touching of tongues. Yet the stones remain no less real to those who cannot name them or read the mute syllables graven in silica. To see a red stone is less than seeing it as jasper. Metamorphic quartz, cousin to the flint, the Kiowa carved as arrowheads. To name is to know and remember. The sunlight needs no praise, piercing the rain clouds, painting the rocks and leaves with light, then dissolving each lucent droplet back into the clouds that engendered it. The daylight needs no praise, and so we praise it always, greater than ourselves and all the airy words we summon. Go to Herbert now, can you? Um, I'm just going to take one of his poems, and I think I'll do one again next week, but let's take Yesu. It's on the back of the first page of the Herbert poems, okay? They were out there tonight on the table, so if you didn't get one, you can just pick one up. In the two poems I have in my mind from Herbert, both of them deal with um, the secret meanings of words. It's as if words have this in, innate quality, inherent quality to engender, to, um, to fructify. Yeah, to engender, fructify, give birth to. So George Herbert's Yesu, okay. Are they all gone, Bob? Do you? They should. Yeah, we've had you've had Herbert for a while, but this this one is Yesu. Um, actually, let me go to Mary on page three. Because he's, he's doing that in our life is hid with Christ in God. That's on page three. And even in heaven and, and Mary, all of them are dealing with this strange power of words to fructify, to engender, to bring forth, okay? In the Mary anagram, it says, Mary, Anna, Army, Graham. Why did he put it that way with Anna on the left and Graham on the right and Army in the middle? Why is Anna there? What does anagram mean? It's fixed up. Anagram. It's a use of all of the letters of the 
Yeah, to produce other words, yeah. Um, why is Anna there? Who is Anna? Mother of Mary. Right, she gave birth to Mary. Why is, an, what's, why is army in the middle? What is army? It's a rearrangement of the words from Mary. And it's the host that Christ created, that Mary carried in her womb. See what he's doing with words? Is that clear? He's taking anagram and breaking it. And if you look at it this way, it's clear that Anna um, led to the gram, the word, the word. Um, and um, one of the signs of it is that you can take a word like Mary and find that it also speaks another word, army, which is suitable. It's the host that Christ created. So Mary, the anagram, how well her name an army doth present in whom the Lord of hosts did pitch his tent. Okay. Now let's do Jesus. And notice what he does with the letters from Jesus, from Jesus. Okay. So watch how that word breaks down and begins to speak other things. Jesus is in my heart. His sacred name is deeply carved there. But the other week a great affliction broke the little frame, even all to pieces, which I went to seek. So right at that moment of distress, usually when we feel something wrong in our lives, something comes out of it. Something is born out of it. A great affliction broke the little frame, even all to pieces, which I went to seek. So you wanted to pick, it's like picking up the parts of your life when we feel broken, right, in pieces even all to pieces which I went to seek. And first I found the corner where was yea, or I, after where ease, and next where you was graved. When I had got these parcels, instantly I sat me down to spell them and perceived that to my broken heart he was, I ease you, and to my whole is Asu. So, these poets are helping us to see that there's some special power that words have. Um, it's going to be one of the great themes of the Odyssey. Okay. Also included in your handout should be um, these graphic pictures of the cities and some other things. You just hold on to it. Um, we're not going to do it tonight, but we'll get to it. Okay. Okay, the Odyssey. Um, why is the Odyssey important? For a number of reasons. One of them is that it completes the story of the Iliad. The story of the Iliad is incomplete without it. Yes, something happened. We don't hear it. By the way, this is really wonderful. The next story we'll read will be the Aeneid. And what we find out is that the Iliad story wasn't, after all, completed even here. Because um, one of the Trojan heroes, a man named Aeneas, who survived the destruction of his city, the loss of everything, is the hero of the Aeneid. He, he will be the that is, he will be the one who brings a loss out of a loss, this extraordinary thing. It's like sweeping streets, even worse, because somebody who had his whole life destroyed is the one who was chosen to bring this extraordinary thing into being. So 
The Iliad story won't be completed even then. It won't be even completed until we get to Dante, maybe not even then. So the Odyssey completes the Iliad story. Um, we learn what happened afterwards, number one. Number two, and really importantly, in the Odyssey, we're helped to see all the effects of war. While all of these men were away for 10 years, imagine what was happening back home. There's no fathers around. There's no father raising sons. Every one of those suitors, or most of them we gather, grew up without fathers. And they're just ravaging Odysseus's home and pushing Penelope, trying to use force to get her to marry. So it's completing the Iliad. It's also showing us the effects of war and particularly on a family. And you, you know from our work in the Iliad that the central topic of the Iliad was kleos, honor. And we saw that what Homer was helping us to show in the midst of all this chaos, the chaos couldn't be worse, this is a war, people are killing each other. In the midst of all these horrendous things emerged this new sense of this intrinsic dignity to man, that man has this inherent dignity um, that consists of something transcendent. It relates him to the gods. He's, he's related to a divine. He isn't, he isn't just determined by booty, by possessions and wealth. There's something greater in him. And what the truth that Homer shows us is that no man can realize that dignity until he comes to admit his own fault, until he accepts his limits, his weaknesses, his failings, and accepts death. That's why I argue that it's really in some ways, it's extraordinary to me. It's, it's intimating Christ. We're getting hints of Christ long before he ever came. So there was something in nature. There was something in nature. The fact that men could come into being like a tree, a fruit tree, would produce good fruit and then fall. If that's true of a tree, how can it be less true of men? There's something in nature inherently good, but there's something flawed about it. And Homer saw the depths of that in our human nature and showed it in this poem. So in the Iliad, the central concern was Kleos, honor. The central concern of the Odyssey is marriage. So it's another foundational work. I would say it's the second foundational work of Western civilization. It goes with Genesis and Ex or Exodus, yeah, the first two books. Genesis and Exodus, that is a founding work, except it's not from the side of divine revelation, it's from the side of something I'm calling prophetic in our human nature, in this epic tradition. So the, the fundamental theme of the Odyssey is one of the warriors who had to leave home to fight this war returns home. He sets off with all the men, after 10 years they all go home, but on the way, something happens to him, he gets turned off course, and he ends up beat away from home another 10 years. So whatever problems the people faced when they got home um, were made worse, in Odysseus's case, because he didn't get home until 20 years later. So his son has grown from a babe into young, young manhood without a father. Okay, and the, and the book opens exactly at that moment when Telemachus is facing the problem how to grow into manhood. What does he got to do now with all of these men tearing up his home? And what's going to happen with Penelope? Because these suitors are not going to leave her alone. So we're seeing the same element of force 
we saw in the Iliad, men are, this, the tendency of men to use force and violence. Um, and the answer to it in relation to marriage, as it applies to marriage. That's the focus, okay? Now here's, here's the, the plot. Um, so, the, God, wow. The, the book is divided basically into three parts. The Telemachi, it's this struggle of Telemachus to grow into manhood and become a man. And in, in the early, we'll, we'll see it if you haven't started yet, but um, Athena comes and through the character of um, another character, lets Patroclus, or I mean Telemachus know that he should go in search of his father. She tells him to go to Pylos and Sparta. Pylos is Nestor's home. Nestor was one of the heroes, remember, in the Iliad. And Menelaus, you know, was the man who was offended because Paris took his wife, Helen. So this is so important. So um, one of the principal concerns of the Odyssey will be families. So Telemus is, go, is going to go in search of his father, but he's going to encounter Nestor and his family and Menelaus and his. So Homer's presenting before us in the opening two families and two marriages. Now just hold on to that because they're going to be important when we look at what happens with Odysseus and his marriage. Because when he comes home, because of everything he's dealt with, he's able to bring something to a marriage that he could not have brought if he hadn't gone through these adventures. So once again, I'm going to claim it's pointing towards Christ in a marriage. Okay, something between a man and a woman. So it begins with the Telemachi, and then it goes on to Odysseus's wanderings. That's the first or the middle part of the book. And then the last third deals with, God, sorry, wow, God, his homecoming. And when we, wow, when we get here, we first discover Odysseus at Calypso's island. Hermes comes to help free him, and he will set off in a raft, and he'll come to the um, island of the Phaeacians. And when he comes to this island, he will retell the story of his journeys. Or journeys. God, sorry. Wow. Gosh. Um, does everybody have that structure, that plot? So it opens with, um, with us at, at Ithaca and, and, um, and Telemachus. Athena comes to help him. It'll, it'll take us to Odysseus, who's been at Calypso's island for eight years. So for eight years of his journey, he's been here under her spell. He'll go to the island of the Phaeacians, and then there he will tell his story of everything that happened since he left Troy. And the Phaeacians will take him home. So these, the middle part has to do with Odysseus's journeys, okay? And what we learned then, um, this to me is not a small thing. If, if you look at the Iliad as a critique of men and the way in which men are given to force, that men are, that's a tendency in men to use their physical, their superior physical strength. Um, what, one of the things that we learn when Odysseus is at sea is the power that women have. And it's not always used well. 
of the nine, the nine and a half years that Odysseus is away after he leaves Troy to go home, he's under the power of women for nine of those years. So Homer's making it clear that there's a real danger to what women do. It's not open, it's not overt, it's not physical force, it's not abuse, but it's a serious power. And Odysseus has got to learn to deal with it if he's to come home and establish rule again at home. Okay? So any questions about the plot or generally what we're looking at? What was the first thing that you have in that first row? Telemachus? Yeah, what, this are you spelling that? T-E-L-E-M-A-C-H-I, the Telemachi, the it's the section, it's about Telemachus. I wish I could say there's hope for my handwriting, but I don't think there is. <laughs> Um, is everybody clear on the structure, the plot? Okay. It's going to be real important because I'm, I'm going to come back to it once we get into the story. But Okay, the, the most important themes in the Iliad. Once again, like the Iliad, the Odyssey is about the abuse of force. But one of the fundamental differences in the, in the Odyssey is that it, it's dealing with not only the force of men, the brute force, but the power of women um, and um, the danger that they present to men. So, um, it, it, Homer's such a realist, he just doesn't sentimentalize anything. So, um, what we see here in the beginning of this story is once again Homer the poet asking for help from the gods. It opens with an invocation. You should know that now. The invocation is invoking, it's calling on the help of the god, Calipo, Calipi, and it's a feminine goddess. She's one of the um, nine muses to tell this story. It begins like the Iliad in Medius race. Right? You remember that. In the midst of things. And we know how important that is. I, I just can't you know, I can't underscore this stuff enough. When we're younger <laughs> and think we know so much and are really pretty stupid, I think, for the most part, we're not aware of things. But, you know, when we have a family and, and we're suddenly parents, say, and we're in the middle of our marriages, very often things happen um, and they have an effect on us when we're older that they couldn't have had when we were younger. And it's not to say any of us didn't grow up with traumatic experiences when we were younger. But we're more conscious later. When we're parents, we have to take a greater care for our children than we would when we were children ourselves. So in medius race is really important. It's not in the middle of things arithmetically. It's in the midst of things. When you're in the middle of your life, and Dante, when he opens the Divine Comedy, he's going to say, midway through my life. Those are the opening words of the Commedia. Because all of us reach these points when we grow in consciousness that something's not quite right. And so it is here. So the way we looked at things when we were younger isn't sufficient. It's really about a moment where we become more conscious of something and have to look back. And so the poem opens that, that problem, whatever it is. So the, like the Iliad, this one opens in medias race, in the midst of things. What's the midst of things? All the problems partly created by the war, no fathers at home, and moreover, 
even where there are homes, the homes are in disorder. What will take it to, to make a family better, to help a family become better as a family? That's central to the Odyssey. Um, in the opening, it's announced, in fact, let me, let me read through it because it'll, it'll, it'll announce the themes. Go to the first page. Beginning of book one. Tell me, muse, of the man of many ways who was driven far journeys after he'd sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were those whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of, many the pains he suffered in his spirit on the wide sea, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. There's the theme. All of the great themes are already announced in the opening lines. He, there will be some elaborations, but that's basically it. This is about a man, crucially, this is about a man of many ways. I, I can't think of a better definition of prudence because prudence knows what to do, under what circumstances, how, the right time. That is, you have to be flexible enough to know what the difference is between doing something here and here because what might have been right at one moment might not be right in the next. That's a, that's a good definition of virtue, a man of many ways. Remember, in fact, by the way, remember in the Iliad when Homer gave us the catalog of the ships? Who was at the two ends? Do you remember? This should be a test question. Who was at the two ends of the ships? Hmm? Aias. Aias, good for you, Mary. God bless your soul. And Achilles. And Achilles. God, you are good. And in the middle was Odysseus. Go she saved you all. <laughs> She's absolutely right. Aias and Achilles were the two strongest and the most powerful. Aias was the one who kept putting F, um, Hector off when Achilles was out. Um, he's not as great as Achilles, but they're the two most powerful men. Who was in the middle? Odysseus. That's not an accident. It's Homer's way of showing things. So here in the Odyssey, this poem is about this man of many ways, okay? And many were those cities whose minds he learned of. That is, no man can come to realize who he is without having to deal with a multiple, multiplicity of problems around him, yeah? Think about a man growing up with just one dimension and he's stuck in one way, and he suddenly had to encounter lots of other things. How would he deal with them? If you grew up in a city, for example, today, you're going to encounter far more problems, the multi complexity of problems, than you would if you just grew up on a home, not having to deal with anything. So there's a correlation between the gifts of his mind and what he had to encounter that's going to be important for him when he gets home. I hope that's clear. I mean, all of us assume that, that it's only because we encounter a variety of problems, and sometimes they're very dangerous, and sometimes they can be life-threatening, but they're crucial for who we're supposed to become. Take them away, and we won't be who we were given to be. The ultimate sign of that, Christ on the cross, who knew everything, who knew everything, and had to face an ultimate ordeal. So this is our hero, okay? Um, the homecoming of his companions. 
The great theme of the Odyssey is um, nostos, homecoming, home. Remember from which we get nostalgia? Remember? Um, God, sorry. The great theme of the Iliad was Kleos. The great theme of the Odyssey is nostos, nostos, homecoming. Here, coming home. And you know that when we get to Dante, that, thing's going to be ex that theme is going to be expanded because the Homer had it right. Homer had it right. But the ultimate homecoming is returning to our Father, the one who created all of us. So this is like a temporal and earthly intimation of that fact in our nature. There wasn't anything that Homer didn't understand about our nature. Then all the others, as many as fled sheer destruction, were at home now, having escaped the sea and the fighting. Everybody else got home. This one alone, longing for his wife and his homecoming, was detained by the queenly nymph Calypso, bright among goddesses, in her hollowed caverns, desiring that he should be her husband. Um... If you go back to the opening um, lines, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions, even so he could not save his companions, hard though he strove to, they were destroyed by their own wild recklessness. Fools. Look at that word fools. The Greek word for that is napios. I'm going to come to it in a minute. Fools. Throughout this whole poem, that word takes place in the first foot. Remember, these are poetic lines. They have a rhythm. Homer's it's a song. That word keeps occurring in the first line. What kept the other men from returning home was their foolishness. So we're going to learn about what keeps people from coming home. The word in Greek is um, napios, um, fools. The Greek word fools doesn't mean just mean doesn't mean just being foolish. It means being childlike, um, stupid, um, and more importantly, maybe in some sense, not knowing how to use words, like a child. So growing to maturity is partly contingent on learning to use words, because they help relate us to our world. The fools are those who are like children. Okay? Now, as we go through this, keep that in mind. Just for example, how well do the suitors use words? Are they open to the gods? Do they hear the gods when the gods speak to them? If you've been reading, you know that. When the gods are around speaking to them, they don't hear. They just stubbornly stay where they are. Telemachus listens, so does Odysseus. Remember, um, did Hector listen well to the gods? No, he didn't. Um, I remember Athena came to Achilles at the opening of the Iliad and said, wait, your honor will be restored. Put your sword back, wait. Achilles had to suffer and wait. Um, and the last thing is, um, once again, um, the action begins with a god being angry at the hero. Who is the god who is angry 
at the beginning of the Iliad and why. Do you remember? It opened with an offense against the gods. That's how the story opened. It's happening here too. It opens, the action opens with something happening because of what somebody did to involving the gods. Who is the god who was angry at the beginning of the Iliad? Good for you, yeah, Apollo. Remember, the priest brought his booty to ransom his daughter back. He was the priest of Apollo, and Agamemnon refused him. Achilles called the assembly and said, give the girl back. We're, there's a plague going on, men are dying. Agamemnon refused to do it. Who's the god who's angry here? Poseidon. Do you remember why? Yeah, because the Cyclops is related to Poseidon and Achilles blinded him. We'll find out what happens later. Here, but hold on, because this is what's really important. Both of these books open on an offense against the gods. And in both instances, human beings do not understand that they're doing that. I mean, Homer is so clear. There's something wrong with the world. We keep doing things thinking we're okay and discover that what we do had consequences beyond our seeing. So the action starts when Achilles is where he is. The god is angry at him, Poseidon's angry at him because of what he did to Cyclops. And the interesting thing when we get there, Odysseus is only doing what he should have done to save his life. What Homer is showing us is we're in a fallen world. We're not in a black, white, pure world. There's no such thing as purity. Humans are fallen. He's a realist in the sense that he's teaching us to deal with the fallen world. By the way, here, I'm going to, oh, this was going to be my opening remark and I forgot. I have a friend who, he's, he, he's been one of the parishioners that's been doing this class now for five years. That he's a, an engineer, an oceanic engineer. He's worked with Oceanic Gulf and all these major companies and just a very bright man. He's got, the, he's got a physics background in physics, so he's got that precision that scientists have. And we often talk, and it's almost impossible for him to describe something that went on that day without realizing that he's, a world, he's in a, living in a world in which people don't use, aren't very rational at all. It can be a secretary at a bank, it can be somebody in a medical office, but he'll, he'll just, he, will, he will speak to something, and it's as if people, they're in their protocol, their bureaucracy, like machines do, and they just, they're one-dimensional, they're not responding. And I keep laughing at him. I mean, I, I do the same. I mean, I just, I, but I laugh at him because I, I take the Odyssey seriously. What the Odyssey's about is a human being um, who's learned to be virtuous um, and so learned to deal with a, with a world that's lost its mind. I don't think there's a better way to put it. We go around every day thinking everything's okay, but it's not okay. Wherever we go, we're encountering problems. Um, the Odyssey is a story about a man dealing with a world that's out of kilter. And he's got to learn to, to see the causes, the roots of it, so that he can bring something to his home that ordinarily we don't have. That's what the Odyssey's about. So it's a man of many ways um, trying to return home. And for nine of the nine and a half years he's gone, He's under the control of feminine figures, okay? So he's having to learn something about 
force in the way men use it, and he's having to learn something about women if he's to get home. Okay? So let me stop on that. Any questions before we turn, I think, to the text now? I want to I take one minute with language before we start, but any questions about all of this? That's just general outline stuff. It's a great story. If you've been reading, you know it's much simpler than the Iliad. It just reads so much more simply. It's, it's, you, you can read a chapter in a half hour. You know, it's pretty easy. Sure what you're... I guess my question is, was he already blown off course because, because of a previous fault that he gave Poseidon? The fault with Poseidon occurs after he's... Wait, I can't, boy, I can't even Seems remember. Like he's already Wait, hold on, Con, that's a, com that's a com complicated... Yeah, but that's, I mean, that isn't the reason they give here. The reason they give here in the book is that, um, we'll look at it in a second, that um, he blinded Poseidon. And, um, boy, now I'm going to have to, because I'm still, I'm picking it up again after a long time, and um, so I'm still in the early chapters. But the, the, I'll give you the order of the adventures next time when we meet so you'll have it. But the, the I think the important thing to see here is that he was gone for nine and a half years. Nine of those years are with women. One year with Circe and eight with Calypso. So his voyage through those first adventures is pretty direct. And the Cyclops precedes them. So he, and by the way, he's suffering always. He suffered through the war um, as a warrior. So he's long-suffering. That's his title. That's his epithet. Long-enduring, long-suffering. What Homer's showing us is what I said before. In, in, in an effort to become good in a world that's fallen, no man can escape suffering. He's going to have to make choices constantly that are, that are going to put him at risk. We're, we're going to look at that closely as we go along. But he was long-suffering. He was suffering during the war. Um, but here Homer makes a m more important thing of it, issue of it, because Odysseus is learning both to be a warrior, he's going to sack a city. When he, his first act, leaving Troy, is to sack a city. He's still a, he's still a warrior. His first city encounters, he sacks it. So it's his, Homer's way of showing that warrior is still in him. It's going to take a long time to answer the, all that was set in motion by the war. Um, he will fight the Lestrigones, um, and he'll come to Cyclops' cave and have to deal with his captivity. It's at that point that he'll blind Cyclops. Um, so he's long-suffering always. But over, I think it, it would be fair to say that over the course of these nine and a half years, that he's had to learn not only to be a warrior, 
but also to be patient and suffer things he has to learn to deal with, particularly the feminine archetypes. So the suffering didn't begin with the Cyclops episode. It was already there, but it's been continuous. But he has to take on a different kind of suffering as he goes on and moves closer to home. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. Wait till we, I'll give you the order too. We're going to work this all out. Right now I just want to lay out some generalizations to help. One last thing before we look to the episodes. I want to, I want to read from the beginning. Last important thing, this, this theme of language, because it, so to me, when we, actually it's interesting. When we get to the Cyclops cave, there's no way not to deal explicitly with language because if any of you have read it, you know that when um, Cyclops and his men go in, Virgil's going to have nothing good to say about that episode. In fact, Virgil's going to have nothing good to say about Odysseus. He thinks he's an awful hero. But I'm, I'm not reading that right now, just to let you know. In Homer's world, Achilles and Odysseus are the best that man can be. Get into Virgil's world. He has nothing good to say about either of those men. And one of the, most, um, one of the scenes he's, Virgil's most critical of is the Cyclops scene, interestingly. When Odysseus and his men go exploring on the island, they come into this cave and they see all this stuff and food and, um, and the Cyclops comes in and closes the door so they can't get out. And Odysseus and his men are threatened with their lives and the Cyclops says, what's your name? Because you always introduce yourself in the Greek world because a stranger could be a god. That's why the rites of hospitality were so crucial. When Paris took Helen away, he violated one of the most sacred customs of the Greek world. He took advantage of a right of hospitality. Menelaus welcomed him into his home. He took, um, he and um, Helen left. Um, so the Cyclops says, what's your name? And Odysseus' answer is, my name is nobody. <laughs> so they blind him. I shouldn't be doing this, I'm giving it away, but um, the, Odysseus has been blind the Cyclops. He's only got one eye. We have to look at all, there's so much going on in this. They blind him, and when the Cyclops is blinded and he starts screaming out in pain, all of his fellow Cyclopeans come running and saying, um, how does he put it? Who's, who's, who's making violence against you by, trick, by trickery or force or something like that? And Cyclops' response is, nobody's tricking me by force or, I mean, you know, that is their one dimensional in their minds, their one eyes is an image of one dimensional thinking. They don't, they can't relate to the world. I don't want to go into this, but the punning on that word, my name is nobody, is, is going to play into this, it's it, everywhere. One of the things that we're going to have to deal with as we move through this book is what Odysseus does with, and what Homer's doing with words. Okay? And that Cyclops episodes will be pivotal for it. But here, here's where I want to go. This whole theme of language is crucial to the Odyssey. And I want to ask you all this question and I want to do it more personally. You know that the word epic comes from epos, word. means a divine word. The poet is actually relating to us what's being told to him by the gods. Calliope is the one telling the story. The word nostos, home, it's the word from which we get Nostalgia, longing to go back. Economia, 
the modern word, economics. The original Greek for that, ekonomia, means ek ekonomos, the rule, the order of the household. This is, how, this is how silly it, I mean, this is where we got, it's just gone nuts. The word economics does not mean taking care of finances. That's how, I really want, I want to underscore, that's how materialistic we've become today, from, largely from Marx and largely from 19th century economists. All of us are too old, I know, I know this in this room, except maybe all of us are too old not to know that, I mean, I know that lots of marriages are broken up because of financial matters. But I also know that most of the problems that are serious in a home are not economic, they're spiritual. They're what we do in the way we handle our problems. What's going on in our world today to help us deal with those disorders? Homer is absolutely a realist. Economia does not mean financial economics. It means rule of the household. What does it take to order a home? So once again, a play on words. We're going back to another world. Economia, the rule of the house, the law of the household. That home will not become what it should be until Odysseus learns some things and brings them home. The word Odyssey means journey, ship, you know, get in a ship and take a journey. It also means in the book, it's, um, it, we'll learn about it later when Odysseus tells his story, it means distasteful. Now stop and think about that. There is not an, an, um, an adventure, there's not a people Odysseus meets that doesn't suffer from him. He brings pain wherever he goes. He's distasteful. Let me put it differently. Um, <laughs> why were all the apostles, disciples, martyred? Because what they did people liked. When you encounter a, a virtuous person, <laughs> how often do we like virtue? Maybe is the best. If we, if we had to confront Christ, I, I mean, I'm sure all of us would want to welcome him, but I, I'm assuming lots of us would have to deal with some sins in ourselves before we could look at him well. I mean, typically people don't like good people. They offend them because they're reminded of their faults with them. Wherever Odysseus goes, he causes suffering. His name means distasteful. Turn to book one, just quick. There's another meaning from it. Book one, it's, um, page 28. It's, it's 62, Bob. Um, it's book one's... Book 1, line 62. The gods are in assembly and they're dealing with the problem of getting Odysseus home because he's been on Calypso's island for eight years. And um, Athena's talking to Zeus, her father, and, and, and um, grieving over the fact that Odysseus has been held up. And she says, But you, Olympian, the heart in you is heedless of him. Did not Odysseus do you grace by the ships of the Argives making sacrifice? In wide Troy, why Zeus are you now so harsh with him? That word harsh comes from the Greek oduso, oduso, um, which means set against, pushing against. It's a pun on Odysseus. Wherever Odysseus goes, he's going to push on things. People are not going to like him. Um, he's going to be doing things to offend them. 
So Odysseus is not only a character, he represents something in our nature that we can come to, but he's going to cause pain wherever he goes. Napios, I've already defined it, fools, means childlike, but more importantly, it means not, not able to use language, not able to use words. So Homer's going to be punning all the way through this, and one of the things he's going to, listen to this, one of the things that words is going to do, this is extraordinary, it, it just leads so directly to Plato. Um, Plato couldn't have done what he did without Odysseus. When you're hearing a pun, what world are you in? It's a little bit like the Eucharist. When you're hearing a pun, are you completely one with the world that you're in, or are you also taken out of it into a mental world because you're thinking about something? Like you distance yourself from this world. Are you following me? Because we, we, so we, we, for a moment, it's like a, um, an epic action is suspended and we enter a world of thought that's, dis, that's distancing us. Words do that. They make us think. Okay? So the word Odysseus has a variety of meanings and um, he himself um, is going to learn from the variety of his situations and he's going to grow in a wind of wisdom because of what, it, what happens with him. But here, I want to last one question. The other day, I was in the shower thinking about, I mean, this happens so often to me when I'm in the shower. So often, I'll be there, and a thought will hit me. I'll be, it'll be with the Odyssey, or it would have been with uh, the Iliad, you know? And I'll be thinking about it, and you guys, and, um, and suddenly I have a thought, and we'll pull together things that I've been mulling over. Um, and I don't think anything about it. I just go, ah, you know, and go on. But, but it, it finds a place in what I'm doing because it, it throws a light on so much. And it makes sense of what I'm struggling to look at. I'm, all of you guys have had that experience, yeah? I'm hoping. We all, all of us know it. Okay, here's my question. Where does that come from? When you have a new thought and it hits you, and it suddenly pulls together a lot of things. We don't think about it, we just think, it's me. How bright I am, or, you know, whatever. Where does that thought come from? I'm asking this really honestly. Spirit. Huh? Holy Spirit. Yeah. St. Augustine would have called it illumination. There are moments that are luminous, that suddenly it's like a light is given to it. And, and very often, I mean, I, I just think about it. I, you know, I can be in the bedroom, in a chair, and I'll suddenly have an impulse to get up and go do something. And the older I get, the more I look back at those moments, I think. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I, this is not a denial of free will, because I believe God gives us free will. But I also believe that there are moments when we have a thought and we do something. We don't think a thing about it. We go on. It's not a big thing. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's not. Where, where do those illuminations, where do those thoughts come from? So this this theme of language that a word can bring to light, that it can throw a light on something that suddenly pulls things together. Okay? It's not a small concern in the Odyssey. Language and the light that it offers us through, I mean, I go back to my image. If we, if we had been locked up in a closet all of our life and came out at 25 years old, what state would we be in? So words and what they do to help us grow in wisdom. 
Odysseus, long-suffering Odysseus, long-enduring Odysseus. The great virtue of this book is enduring, suffering, growing in a wisdom. Okay, it's very different. So we've gone from a world in which Achilles was a great hero, a fighter, and we know that he made a choice um, that was going to lead him to his death in the Iliad. Odysseus is another hero. He has to get home to a family. And we're watching the kind of things he's going to have to learn to endure, to suffer from, if he's to get home. Does that mean he's not going to be a warrior? Absolutely not. When he gets home, you know that he's going to have to fight a hundred suitors. Okay, that's not a small task. Um, but we're in a different world, dealing with different virtues. Okay, so... Let me stop. I'd, I'd like to go to the book. Any questions about any of this? About language or Odysseus as a hero or the different world we're in? Or Mary, yeah. I'm, I'm in book nine and I just noticed he cries a lot. He's always crying. Give me an example. What are you thinking in book when, nine? When he was with Calypso, he, he, oh, yeah. he would come out every day and cry. cry. <laughs> and when he's in the house... Um, know if I say his name right, Antinous or whatever, he's in his house, he puts the tunic over his head and he's crying and crying while the oh, uh, is singing the... When he's with the Phaeacians, yes. where he's going to tell the story? He keeps crying and yes. crying yes. and crying and crying all the time. Yeah. He hides himself. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any thought about that? Do you, do you think that's not good or what's your response? Well, it's just the opposite to me of him being the warrior. Yeah. I mean, not the opposite, but a very human side, I guess, that he, he really, 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 really wanted to get home. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, it's a good thing. I, I almost can't wait till we get to the Aeneid, but sorry, go ahead. I was just saying it was long, if you keep saying the long suffering, I'm thinking, why wouldn't you cry? Right. What I, I was just going to say... Um, I don't want to take anything away from Achilles. I just think he's an extraordinary, I personally think he's an extraordinary hero. I think we're meant to. But one of the differences is he accepted his death and went into war. Odysseus goes home and has to carry 10 years of being at war, killing people, and go home. And because he gets thrown off course and he ends up not being able to go directly home and he has to suffer, he carries a lot with him. When he's with Calypso, he's, it's interesting. I, there's, a lot is going on here. She has a power over him. He can't just go away on his own. He sorrows. He, and by the way, this is so, it, it gives a key about what she reveals about feminine, the feminine that Odysseus has got to deal with. She's an image of immortal beauty. She offers him immortality. This is really interesting. She offers him immortality. He refuses that says something about him because one of, the, one of the interesting things we have to contemplate then is what if he had accepted her offer? If he had been tempted, think about the temptations of Christ. If he had been tempted and, and said, I want to live forever. Any, any negative thoughts to that? Why would that, not have, why would that might not have been wise? He was human by nature. By nature was he meant to be immortal. It's really interesting to think about what that temptation was, what she, because it sounds glorious. He may have lived forever and aged forever. 
I'm going to have been to something, huh? Suffered for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His end, his end is to get home. Um, so he carries a lot with him, you know, the sorrows, the long, the long suffering Odysseus. Um, he bears a lot more. Um, Achilles' great virtue was going into battle and defeating his enemy. Odysseus has to get home to his family. So, different world. Any more thoughts? I want to look at the readings just briefly to get us going in the, in the book. Um, it's a good book. It's easy to read. It really is a good book. And there's a lot going on. You just, there's a lot of food for us. A lot of food for us. Let's look at the book. Page 31, book one. Um, book one, about line 25 or so. Um, Bob, I'm on page 28. Is that, is that the same page in your edition? I think the lines are the same, but do you have the same page number? Yeah, I don't. I'm on page 28. Uh, uh, right. So I can name the page and you all will be with me, right? You again. <laughs> what do you have? Isn't it's not the same? It is, but like it may be different going on depending on how they I think they're the same. We'll find out. We'll find out. So the gods are meeting in assembly to um, um, to look at this question of Odysseus. Um, but look at this, this is really interesting. In assembly. Meanwhile the other Olympian gods were gathered together in the halls of Zeus. First among them to speak was the father. For he was thinking of stately Agisthos, whom Orestes, Agamemnon's far-famed son, had murdered. Remembering, he now spoke before the immortals. Oh, for shame, how the mortals put the blame on us gods, for they say evil comes from us. This is the claim that moderns make, that we don't have free will, that the gods play with us. Homer's answering it. Um, they, they say, we cause everything, who by, uh, humans who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond what's given, as now lately beyond what was given to Agisthos, married the wife of Atreus' son, that's Agamemnon, and murdered him on his homecoming, though he knew it was sheer destruction, or we ourselves had told him, sending Hermes, remember he's the, the guide, the messenger god, Ergophontes, not to kill the man, nor court the lady in marriage. Um, go down, for so Hermes told him, but for all his kind intention, he could not persuade the mind of Augustus, and now he's paid for everything. Now here's what, that may all seem irrelevant. It's not. You know that Agamemnon sacrificed, or sacrificed his daughter to, to set off for Troy. And for nine years, Ag, um, Clytemnestra, his wife, resented that and plotted to kill him when he came home. The, the play, the dramatist Aeschylus wrote, his famous trilogy, the first great dramatic works, um, called the trilogy, the Agamemnon, the Libation Buyer, um, Bearers, and the Eumenides. In the Agamemnon, it's about Agamemnon returning home and being murdered. The second play is about um, Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's son, Orestes, killing his mother to avenge her killing his father. And you can imagine the whores the son would have to carry he had to do it. Apollo was partly behind it. 
But he had to do it, and he did it, and left with a horde. They go on, finally, to, to some extraordinary. What's, what's going to happen in that play? It's, this is not the place to go into. But, but it leads to the founding of Athens, the just city. It's the one city that can deal with divine things and human, city, and human things. The reason they're bringing this up here is why? Because Telemachus is facing a real ordeal. He's got a hundred suitors at home. Will he have the courage to do something on a scale that Orestes did when he had to kill his mother? Now, before you go any farther, think about that. Those of you who have read Hamlet, there are allusions in Hamlet to this fact because Hamlet's facing the same sort of thing. His father was killed by his brother and he's got to kill his uncle to avenge his father's death. So very often these heroes are placed in these awful situations because of what humans do. The question here is, will Telemachus have the courage that Orestes had? So Orestes is behind, it's a backstory to this, okay? And in some sense, Telemachus is going to have to measure himself against this story. They, they take note that Odysseus's um, um, Anogesia with Calypso about line 50. He's suffering grief on the sea-washed island, the navel of all the waters. Think about that. It's the navel of the water. It's the umbilical cord. Hold on to that because it's a way of understanding who Calypso is. It's the umbilical cord to the divine order. That's her, some, that says something about her. And it gives the background um, that she's the daughter of Atlas and all of that. Um, and then on the next page on 29 at the top it says, it's the earth circler Poseidon who ever relentless nurses a grudge because of the Cyclops whose eye he blinded. For Polyphemus like a god whose power is greatest over all the Cyclops. Theusa, a nymph, was his mother. She was the daughter of Forkes, lord of the barren salt water. She in the hollows of the caves had lain with Poseidon for his sake, Poseidon, shaker of the earth, although he does not kill Odysseus, yet drives him back from the land of his father. He's the one who's keeping him away. So um, Hermes is sent to Calypso's island to free Odysseus, and Athena goes on to Ithaca to help um, Telemachus. Now she takes the form of Mentes on page 30. Um, and Telemachus tells him of the great harm being worked on um, the family over on page 31. This is really interesting. Um, the serving maids brought them bread and heaped up the baskets, and the young men filled the mixing bowls with wine for their drinking. They put their heads to the good things that lay ready before them. But when they had put away their desire for eating and drinking, the suitors found their attention turned to other matters. The song and the dance for those things come at the end of the feasting. A herald put beautifully wrought lyre in the hands of Phemios, who sang for the suitors because they made him. He played his lyre and struck up a fine song. Now, Phemios is the first lyric poet. He's singing a song. But I want to stop just for a second. What preoccupies the suitors? And is there any difference between their, what they do, what they did 2,000 years ago, whatever, 3,000, almost 3,000 years ago, and what young people do today? What are the things that most preoccupy young people? 
outside of work. Hmm? The other sex, yeah, right. Music, drinking, food. Sex. Have things changed much in 23,000 years? Oh, hold on. And it's on the basis of this that, that they want their music, they want their food, they want their drink, and they're all pushing to have sex with Penelope. Have our, has our appetitive nature changed in 3,500 years? When people go out and party today, and I think that young people party a lot, I mean, from what I you know, gather. Um, how under control are their appetites in anything they're doing? You know, what Homer's, I mean, well, this is going to become clearer and clearer and clearer. The suitors are driven by their appetites for food, for drink, for music, to be entertained. And it's on that basis that they're tearing up Odysseus's home. Um, dear stranger, would you be um, scandalized if what I said to you? This is all they think of, the lyre and the singing. Easy for them, since without penalty they eat up the substance of a man whose white bones lie out in the rain and fester somewhere. I want you all to remember that. The description here, it's going to come up later, the description here is that these people are eating up his home. Outside the home are all the bones left over from their feasting. Does that remind any of you of anything? It's going to be exactly what Odysseus faces when he faces the Cyclops, who will eat up his men. Even though we're not there, there's already a hint. These people are eating up other people. They're taking them for granted. They're not earning their keep. They're eating them. And outside are these bones that are a testament to this carelessness in their lives. Okay. 32. Um, Menti says to Telemachus, um, your father and I claim to be guest friends by hereditary far back. You would know if you were with the age hero. Laertes, who they say no longer comes to the city now, but away by himself. Odysseus' father is living off on his own. Go down a few lines. The gods are, are impeding his passage, for no death on the land has befallen the great Odysseus, but somewhere alive in the wide sea he's held captive on a sea-washed island, and savage men have him in their keeping, rough men, whom some, somehow keep him back, those he's unwilling. Now, he says, I'll make a prophecy. He says, I'm no prophet, but take this seriously. Odysseus will come home. Count on that. Go down. Telemachus says, See, I accurately answer all that you ask me. My mother says, Indeed, I am his. I, for my part, do not know. Nobody really knows his own father, but how I wish I could have been rather son to some fortunate man whom old age overtook among his possessions. But of mortal men, that man has proved the most ill-fated, whose son they say I am. Because he had an ignominious death. He, he doesn't know what happened to him. Um... Line 235, I should not have sorrowed over his dying if he'd gone down among his companions in Troy. So all the Achaeans would have heaped a grave mound over him and he would have won great fame for himself and his son. It's the humiliation a son feels at not knowing what his father, how he died. It's also, in a sense, a glimpse of something noble in Patroclus. 
or I'm sorry, sorry, Doc, thanks. Telemachus, that there's something good in dying for a good reason. He, he, he would have felt differently if his dad had died. You know, let's say he's a policeman shot in a shootout. Um, on page 34, Mente says to him, down towards the bottom, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, to, he says, face the suitors and tell them to stop. 270, rather I urge you to consider some means by which you can force the suitors out of your household. Come now, pay close attention, tells them what to do. He's going to call a council in the next chapter. But meanwhile, he says, or after you do that, go to Pylos and there question the great Nestor. And from there go to Sparta to see fair-haired Menelaus. And you'll find about um, your father. Um, if none of that works out, he says, wait a year and then get rid of these suitors. If you hear he's died and lives no longer, then make your way home to the beloved land of your fathers. Pile up a tomb, make sacrifices, give your mother to a husband. Then after you've made an end of these matters and done them next, you must consider well in your heart and spirit some means by which you can kill the suitors who are in your household by treachery or open attack. You should not go on clinging to your childhood. You're no longer of an age to do this. So part of what we're watching here is a young boy having to grow up and learn to deal with evil. Can't hide your head. You're going to face it in the world. It's time to grow up. So uh, no, Telemachus. Yep. Yep. But they wouldn't be suitors anymore. Well, would they? Good question. I mean, I, would, knowing the suitors, I guess, is the way to put it. Would these men stop? I mean, look at the Iliad, what men were doing daily for after. I, I don't, these men are so, I guess the question is to put, if you look at the men and the way they're driven by their appetites, if one of them finally marries her because it'll be one among them, will those other men just go away and... In fact, it's even a question to me whether wouldn't some treachery be committed on their part. I mean, they're just vicious men. Um, he speaks to Antinous on page 37 and um, Eurymachus. And notice um, about line 380, he speaks to Antinous, who's the leader, and then the second in command about line 400, he turns to Eurymachus. Antinous, Antinous, remember, econo economia. Nomi, nomos, law. Antinous means against the law. Okay? And the second is Eurymachos. Makos means war. They're both vicious men given to force. Now, just looking ahead for a minute, if you had to face the suitors one day, if you yourselves had to face an evil, the hundred men, who would be the first one you would want to take out? Wouldn't you? If you're going to do anything effective with a hundred suit, the most important people to take out would be the leader. Because if you take them out, the others are going to... The cohere, they, they won't have the coherence. They won't be able to hold on to things. It's interesting that... Remember, Homer always orders things. Always. He's always showing us there's some hidden order in nature for us to see whatever we do.
Um, sorry, we're going over to um, 30, go to 36 again, sorry. The top of 36, Pelem, or Penelope comes out and she says to the singer, remember the singer's name is Femios at the top of 36. She says, Femios, since you know many other actions of mortals and gods which can charm men's hearts and which the singers celebrate, sit beside them and sing one of these and let them, um, got right, let them in silence go on drinking their wine, but leave off singing. So she's saying, you can have the wine, do what you want. So she's actually encouraged them. She said, but don't sing anymore because the singing makes her sad. Now remember, what he's singing is most likely heroic songs about battle, Troy. Leave off the singing, this sad song which always afflicts the dear heart. So she said, um, whenever she hears it, I'm minded of my husband whose fame goes wide through Hellas and Bidma. So the songs celebrate heroes. She doesn't want to hear them. Look at what Telemachus does. Then thoughtful Telemachus said to her in answer, Why, my mother, do you begrudge the excellent singer his pleasing himself as the thought drives him? It's not the singers who are to blame. It must be Zeus who's to blame, who gives out to men who eat bread to each and all the way he wills it. There's nothing wrong in his singing the sad return of the Danans. He's talking about the return of the war. So let your heart and your spirit be hardened to listen. Odysseus is not the only one who lost his homecoming. Um, um, but men must see to their discussions. So he's saying, go back to your chamber, leave the men to, um, but all men, but I most of all, for mine is the power of this household. Penelope went back inside the house in amazement for what, for she laid the serious words of her son deep away in her spirit. I don't think we're meant to hear Telemachus being disrespectful to his mom, but he's saying, let the man sing. Um, it's important for this to go on. Now, um, um, he's going to address Antinous and Eurymachus in the next minute, and um, the next day he will call an assembly and confront the suitors. We'll look at that when we meet. But before we end, at the bottom of page 37, he just confronted these two leaders and then says, but best of men, I wish to ask you about this stranger where um, Eurymachus says this, um, I wish to ask you about this stranger, where he came from, what country he announces, where did Mentes come from, how he arrived, how suddenly he started away. That is, they don't see that something miraculous has just taken place. Who is this guy? Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer. Now remember, Mentes just said to him, I'm going to prophesy something, your dad is alive, he's being kept away, stop despairing. What you have to do is put your mind to putting away these suitors, do what I ask, have a meeting with them, and then go to Pylos to talk with Nestor to find out what happened, and then go to Menelaus. And, and that's what he's going to do in the next chapter. But he listens to him. And now the suitors are asking him who this guy was, and he says, top of 38, Eurymachus, there's no more hope of my father's homecoming, even though he's just heard and they say something prophetic. I believe no message anymore, even though there be one, nor pay any attention to any prophecy. Those times my mother calls some diviner into the house and asks him questions. The stranger's a friend of my dear father's. He comes from, he goes on. 
told me the war. He spoke Telemachus, but in his heart he knew the immortal goddess. Then the others go back to dancing and drinking. And What do you make of Telemachus at this moment? Um, this chapter will end here. When we pick up, we'll start in two, and we'll, we'll cover the Telemachi when we meet next time. We'll get through it. Ment Athena had just visited him in the form of Mentes. She's given him this advice, and he just he told his mom, let the guy sing. And just before that, when Mentes had sat down next to him, Telemachus had nothing but bad things to say. He said, I wish my father had died a noble death. I'm, I'm the most wretched of kids. There's the, the gods are doing nothing but bad. And then Athena says, um, in, the, in the person of this man, do this, do this, do this. And, and then when the suitors ask him who this guy was, he says, I don't know. Um, I don't listen to prophecies. I don't. So what's happening? How do we, how do we look at Telemachus? At the, I believe no messages anymore, even should there be one, nor pay any attention to any prophecy. Those times when my mother calls some diviner in a house and asks him questions. The stranger is a friend of my father's. That's it. But in his heart, he knew the immortal goddess. How do we understand Telemachus at this moment? In Yeah, right. Is the word treacherous the right one here? A little bit treacherous? Can you be a little bit treacherous? <laughs> I'm having trouble with that. Deceptive. Cut the guy's head off, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, um, would you all agree? Or? Yes. It's interesting. He's young. We're going to see it in a minute when he visits Nestor. It's, a, it's just a wonderful scene that shows how immature Telemachus is as a young boy. And yet he's on the verge of, and apparently from this scene, because he has the courage to say to his mom, stop it. You know, make a place for this. Even if, even if it causes you suffering, this is important. It's a celebration of these heroic deeds. Give it its place. I don't, I don't think we can hear that with any disrespect. And yet at this moment, he, he confronts the suitors for the first time. And then when they question him on it, it seems to me there's an element of cunning here that he's already, without his father's guidance, he's already learning to deal with evil. That he's not going to give himself completely away because he, knew, he knows, just from what Homer says, he knows that was the goddess. Um, so we're getting an image of a young man on the threshold of manhood. Um, he's not had a father. The problems are enormous. Picture a kid today in our world, overwhelmed with the problems of our world. I'm not kidding. I mean, to me, I just think it's so hard for a young man and a young woman to grow up because you look at the world and you think, what's there to live for? It is so bad. Telemachus is in that state. And he, the suitors have been around for a long time, ravaging the home, eating them, eating them out of things, bones outside, servants, servants being <laughs> eaten up by what they do because they're just feasting on you. They're using these people. Telemachus is watching all this happen, and he's been a young kid, powerless to do anything, but it's a point when he has to do something. So this is the first time he's confronted the suitors. In the next chapter, he will call an assembly, and then he will set out on his own, well, actually with Athena's help, to talk with um, Nestor and Menelaus. So we're watching a young boy slowly grow into manhood. 
stop and think about this just for a moment. You know, I've used this word before. The Greek world looked at Homer as the educator of the Greek world. Think about how important these poems would have been for anybody growing up in the world, then and now. What you would have learned about who we are, the world around us, war, home, you know, it's all there. Homer touched on the most essential things to our life, the things that are the source of the greatest pain. And, and in some way, the occasion for um, becoming good. I, you know, I've, there's Peter Kreef, um, who's a Catholic writer, is a convert, um, has done some really important writings. And in one of his talks, one of his personal talks, when he was describing the modern world, he said, this is a world for saints. I don't think there's a better way. I mean, what else to say? I mean, there's so much bad. There's so much wrong going on. It isn't the world of 100 years ago. It's gotten worse. It's a world for saints. Either we grow into it and get better, or we get crushed by it. So here we are at the beginning of the Odyssey with a young boy trying to take his first steps into manhood. Okay? Okay. See, see you all. See you all next week. Enjoy the reading. It's, it's, really, it's really a good book. Sorry? Oh, two weeks. Yeah, two weeks.